This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Ewa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over. And Brenda Cherry's novel, The East Indian, is so satisfying. It's one of these historical novels that takes you from the coast of India to London to the Americas in 1635. So Brenda's also a Shakespeare scholar, and this is where I get to say it all starts with Shakespeare always. Brenda, thank you so much for joining us on Port Over. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So how does a Shakespeare scholar end up writing about a South Asian Indian man in America in 1635? Well, I mean, I just came across this person, the very fact he existed. In a way, I think the novel started in a place of sort of wonder. And when I say wonder, it's a sort of mix of shock and curiosity and awe that he had even made this journey. I mean, what a long journey. In 1635, and even traveling across the Atlantic was a you know, dangerous journey. And so I had no idea there was an East Indian and I came across this piece of information and I said, I have to write about this. This is my story. So I know you found him in an archive, but what archive was it? And what were you looking for first? Actually, no, originally I did find him in an article, an article that was given to me by a friend who meant, and the article mentions uh, these early East Indians, as they were called, who came over to the Americas and uh, right up to even beyond the American Revolution. And in fact, some of them fought in the revolution on both sides. And, and then I went looking to make absolutely sure, you know, that this person did exist and that he was here in Virginia. And uh, what I found is a land record where he's um, listed as what's called a head right. He was brought okay. over by this English settler as a head right in Okay, and I'm going to ask you to explain headright because honestly, I didn't quite know the phrase until I saw it in your note in the afterward. I'd heard, I mean, obviously, indentured servitude, a lot of us are familiar with that, but headright, I was just kind of like, wait a minute, what? <laughs> Would you explain that? I think, uh, right, they were keen on settling the colony, right? Settling what's this very newly fledged colony. So the more people you brought over, they, they had to provide incentives to bring people over. And uh, so for every person you brought over, you would get 50 acres of land. And so, of course, many of them brought over relatives and friends, but some mm-hmm. of them did bring over servants because servants were much people to work on those. Tobacco tobacco is a labor-intensive crop. And so the need to, for people to work on the tobacco plantations. And it looks like Tony East Indian is all he's listed as, is one of the people brought over by this gentleman, George Menefee. Okay. And you set this up in a really, well, I have to say, interesting way. We meet Tony first on the Coromandel coast of India, which is where Madras is. Mm -hmm. And of course, the British East India Company (laughs) factors in (laughs) quite a lot. But that's how Tony gets to London, where Mm -hmm. he's kidnapped. He's 11 and he's kidnapped (laughs) off the streets of London. Now, I'm assuming there's some basis in fact. For this oh, kind yeah. of thing where, as you just said, tobacco is a labor-intensive crop. You've got to find people to work it. But he's grabbed off the street, put on a boat, he survives, and he ends up in Virginia. Yeah. No, it did happen. Uh, uh, boys, mostly boys, were uh, snatched off the streets of England. And the term, I believe, was spirited. You know, they were spirited away. 
And uh, so they were spirited off the streets of and the people who were engaged. It was a large, I mean, it was actually a complicated enterprise. We're not talking of sort of individual kidnappers who decided it was, and people say like important people in London were making money off this. So these young boys, most of them destitute orphans, uh, they were taken off London, dumped on these ships, and before they knew it, they were on their way to Virginia. What really happened to the historical Tony is unknown, but I try to work within the realm of sort of possibility, you know, things, all of these things were possible, yeah. I mean, what you've created in the East Indian is this combination of coming of age story and also an adventure story. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, how much fun was this for you to write? It was actually a lot more, a lot of fun. I had, I mean, huge, huge uh, anxieties before I started because, I mean, I had to transport my way back to 1635 and. It's very interesting, almost nothing. There's no work, I mean, nothing I came across, a, a work of fiction meant for adults, at least, set in Virginia of the, you know, early settlement of Virginia, and very little on indentured servants. And uh, so I really had sort of no other text I could, you know, talk to. And of course, I had the historical documents. And uh, because of my own training, you know, I was well versed in reading and understanding that and really getting engaged with that kind of stuff. But I was like, I have to transport myself and only then I can transport my reader. But I wanted to write a historical novel that was also a coming of age novel and a coming of age in a very, very complex kind, right? I mean, the coming of age happens because of that movement, right? Because of the movement across the world. I mean, that completely informs his personality and his life and his uh, growth. And I also wanted to write, an, I mean, I love the old-fashioned adventure story, you know, where things happen and, uh, you know, people are sort of moving forward in space and, uh, you know, unexpected encounters and looking for things. And I wanted to write that. I also wanted to write a story about the nature of being East Indian, about the sort of complicated nature of a brown racial identity. Yeah. Right. And I think there are a lot of folks, too, who don't always realize that America wasn't just black and white and native mm. early on, that there were other folks from other places. And it's just the way the historical record was put yeah. down in a way. Yeah. And it's like, well, it's entirely plausible. That people, I mean, the idea that somehow Europe was not multiracial. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Until very recently, I'm like, hmm, huh? you know, where there's trade, where there are ships, you get a lot of different yeah, kind of people, people yeah. getting on ships and moving around. And certainly, yeah. you know, mm -hmm. 1619, we have a whole new understanding of what the American landscape yeah was mm -hmm. like because of that book and the and the subsequent projects, the film and, and the documentary series and what have you. But in terms of research, though, I mean, you don't want this to read like a history book. So you've got to, at some point, let the research sit. I mean, we're not running around as readers fact-checking you. We just want yeah. to read the story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Can we talk about the research process, though, for this book? Because it seems like you hit a lot of material. Yeah, I read a lot, a lot more than a lot of people would say was needed. But that's just my nature. I mean, I have to, it's not just about knowing all the little facts and all the little details. Of course, all of this was important. I, I mean, I got to know about, I mean, tobacco, everything about the colonial uh, cultivation of tobacco. And I became an expert on colonial medicine. 
and uh, you know curing people with i don't know deer, deer urine and that kind of thing and uh, I also got had to know about the plants, the animals, the weather patterns, and of course the larger things like the movement from, which is not a neat movement, but from indentured slavery to indentured servitude to slavery, you know, and uh, how that happened and so on. So I studied, and it's not like you are going to dump everything in the novel, as you said. You know, the novel is not the place to, and any novel is not the place to show off your knowledge, but it sort of has to simmer in the background and. And for me, I think I have to, it has to become part of me. You know, that's the important thing. It has to, when I sit down, I have to take myself back there. When I sit down to write and I have to take my, and the only way I can do that is to read and read and read. So I read for two years, more than two years before. Oh, before you even started writing, it was two before years. Before I even writing. started writing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you start with the idea of Tony, obviously you find this character and you create the story around him you do the research it's all simmering did you surprise yourself at any point when you were writing this book was there something that tony did or something that happened without spoilers obviously because we're airing very close to your pub date is there something that just made you sort of sit back and say oh wait a minute what <laughs> well yeah i think yeah as the story went on i had a broad sense of how i wanted his life to unfold but as the story went on, I think there were things I was not planning on. And, uh, you know, without, again, giving things away, right, there are, there's a moment where he does something which kind of haunts him for the rest of his life. You know, that was something I really did not plan on. And, you know, so there were those little things, I think, not just little things, big things for that matter, you know, as the story, I think you just have to, you know, as I think most authors would just sort of go with the flow of it, because I think the other thing about historical fiction is you want your character because, I mean, let me let me back up a little bit. I'm very aware. I mean, uh, maybe it's because of my upbringing in, uh, in India and all of that, but I'm very aware that the individual life is shaped by historical forces. That's something I cannot get away from which is why it's impossible for me to write a story just about an individual and their conflicts and their families and so on. For me, it always has to be connected to something bigger. But at the same time, you don't want your character simply to represent a historical process, right? So you sort of have that macro reality of the history, but you also have this individual. He has to be interesting in and of himself. He shouldn't simply be a representation of history. That's where the unexpected comes in, because there are so many things you don't expect of your character. Yeah, indentured servant from India, a certain life is going to unfold inevitably, but at the same time, he's also an individual, right? He's just not any indentured. No one is any indentured servant from anywhere. And uh, so I think that's where the unexpected comes in. Yeah, and he chases opportunities too. I mean, he ends up, as you say, taking this journey, but and there are people who help him along the way, but it's also because he walks into the frame and says, well, I would like to do this. Or this, this piece of the story is not working for me. I have to change my life. And it doesn't always work out the way he's hoping or would like, but it's wild to see. And also remembering that he's a teenager when this is happening. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, a teenager in 1635 is having a, that's middle age. You're having a very different experience, you know, than a teenager in present day. And I sort of, I love that. I'm forced to remember that, you know, that, that childhood is a Victorian invention kind of thing. And it's like, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. right. This is a totally different world. And no, you don't just go to the store when you need something. 
You know, if you can't grow it or if you can't barter for it, if you can't buy it from someone else, you don't have it. Yeah. Yeah. Or traveling into the interior at one point, Tony and another character who shall remain nameless at the moment, they go in search of a body of water and they have to work westward in order to do it. And um, it doesn't go well. It's a tough, tough world. And, you know, the more you read about it, you realize, oh, my God, how. And uh, what always struck me and continues to strike me sort of at random moments is this boy all the way from India. I mean, what was his life like and how strange and how bizarre and how lonely in some ways, you know. And uh, But at the same time, I'm sure I always believe there were moments of curiosity and happiness and joy. I think we find them in the most adverse of circumstances, yeah. Well, he finds his people. He finds his yeah. people. And it is very sweet what happens and, and how it happens. The other thing you give him, too, that I really appreciate is that Shakespeare, and I'm coming back to your work as a Shakespeare mm-hmm. scholar, he finds a character, the character in Midsummer Night's Dream. He's taken to the to the theater in London. I just want to talk about that for a second, because you've been a sh- your entire career has been Shakespeare and Renaissance literature. And here you are sort of stepping outside of that, but you never really leave Shakespeare behind. <laughs> cannot, cannot. <laughs> yeah. I so mean, you it's... knew that that was always going to percolate through this story and you were going to give that to him. Yeah. In fact, I would say the story came from uh, both directions, the discovery of Tony and also um, the fact that there is a little Indian boy in A Midsummer Night's Dream. And that has interested, I mean, lots of scholars. I'm not claiming I'm the only one, you know, obviously not. And uh, anything about Shakespeare, lots of scholars. And so that always interested me, the fact that was this boy. And, you know, what is this little boy doing in this you know, in this play about fairies and, uh, you know, he's the figure the king and the queen quarrel over. And in a way, so Tony and the little boy. So I said, okay, a boy alone in the woods, an Indian boy alone in the woods. That's a lot like my Tony. And so the two came together and uh, that's where uh, these. So I think the Indian boy is interesting because uh, to me, the very fact that Shakespeare puts him in that play is an example. I mean, Shakespeare lived in London, as I just said, London was multicultural. And uh, so I'm sure, you know, there were, there were East Indians in the, on the docks and in the harbor and that kind of thing. And I'm sure, you know, he encountered one of them. And there, there have been articles written on the East Indians in London. And I think it's a sign of sort of early globalization kind of percolating into Shakespeare. I mean, you see that with Othello too, right? I mean, you have a black man as the protagonist. And uh, I think it's Shakespeare's awareness in some ways that, or the play's awareness rather, right, about a world that is sort of bigger than one thinks. And it's the beginning. And for me, that's what's fascinating about the 1600s, and which is why I, I love Shakespeare. But I also chose to study the 1600s because to me, it's the beginning of something huge and remarkable. And I keep reinforcing that of my students in a way a new an entire new world is coming into being you know a world that is sort of globalized and modern in the way we understand it with the discovery of the americas and the growing popularity of the printing press and all of it and um, early capitalism all of that right so for me the little indian boy is a sign is a, really a product you know in the poet's imagination of all this of this new world yeah. And also he can read and write. He's one of the only characters who can read and write. And that opens up his universe in a way where other kids might not necessarily 
have the same opportunities. But okay, so you spend two years doing the reading for the research. You find your character, you find everything else. And I'm wondering though, are you outlining as you go? Do you know where the story is going? Or do you just have to follow the work and let it unfold? I mean, you have a pretty significant cast of characters. But the book is not an overwhelming length at all. It's it's a very quick read, which I was surprised <laughs> at how much you did in, mm-hmm. you know, what, 300 something page? Not oh, even it's that. Not 200. Even, yeah, it's not even 300. Not even 300, yeah. And yet I'm in this world. There's so much happening. I want to know everything that's going on. I want to know where we're going. I'm delighted by the end of this book too. But for you as the writer, where are you as this is going on? I mean, seriously, are you working off an outline or are you just kind of saying, all right, I'm going to tell a story? A rough outline, because I think a novel is a sort of unruly beast. You know, you need to, unless you have it a little bit under control, I think it's good. It's really, I mean, I find I would find it really hard to just sort of walk in blind and get started. So I do have an outline of sorts. But um, you never really stick to it. You know, as you go on, you know, things modify, things change. And in fact, I rewrote the whole second half of the novel. And I had a very different kind of um, second half. And it was Eric Simonoff, my agent, who suggested, he said, you know, I don't know if the second half is really working. And of course, at first I was like, what do you mean? But then, you know, I thought about it and I saw where he was coming from. So I sat down and uh, I completely rewrote the second half of the novel, which was not something I was planning on. So I roughly outlined, but I let the story carry me, you know, and I let the character carry me. And I think there's so much happening. People don't, I mean, it's the complexity of the time period and much as a writer that you can pick up on and be swept along by, you know, there's so much. I mean, there are five millions of things going on at the same time. And so I think there are so many possibilities to choose from and you cannot plan every single one of them. You just get to that road and then you decide which, you know, which are you going to go this way or this way? I didn't realize you'd rewritten the whole second half because the book really flows. And I think that's so important that you don't get stuck when you're reading historical fiction. I, I, you know, and I know I said this a little earlier, like, I don't need to fact check you. I need to hear a story. That's wild to me that you had to rewrite the entire second half. So the physical writing of the book, how long did that take you? I don't know if one is supposed to say this kind of thing because people always say I wrote this book for six years and seven years. I don't work that way. I work pretty it's, uh, you know, I do other things. I mean, I have, uh, I'm a full-time job. I'm a Shakespearean and I just finished a Shakespeare book, in fact, just before this. And so I just sit down and go for it. And I, luckily I was in sabbatical, I have to say that. So I was in sabbatical. So, so I would say about a year and a half, you know, about that much. Yeah, that's, but I, I tend to be a fairly disciplined writer. Once I start, I just keep going. Yeah. Well, also, I have to say, I mean, again, and I know I've hinted at this, but the way this book flows and the way the story flows and the way you keep us turning pages. And this is, I mean, I remember being taught about this period of American history in school, but it's not something that, you know, an average reader is walking around with a lot of information in their head about. So for me, the world building was really, really important. And hearing you say that, you know, yeah, I did a ton of research, but you don't need to see all of it. That is so clear when you're reading this. It's just, I handed myself over to this world and these characters 
and essentially you. (laughs) So when did you know you had the narrative voice? I mean, was it after you rewrote that second piece? I mean, the first half of the book flies by. And again, we're on the Coromandel coast of India, and then we're in London, and then we're in the Americas. And it's just like, boom, here we are in the Mm -hmm. story. So I sort of feel like you knew early what you had. I think more than anything, I think I had this kind of fondness for this character. You know, he was, he could have been my nephew, you know, and I had this kind of fondness for this character. And uh, so I just kind of went along with that. And, uh, you know, I, I started with this place of sort of curiosity and affection, both for this little orphan boy, really, essentially. And uh, it took me through the whole thing, I think. And I didn't, I don't recall i mean of course you know there are always plot points you struggle over i mean i think that's the most difficult thing about writing a novel right you have to sustain plot but i think i was so invested in my character that i sort of floated on that and uh, that kept me going and i was quite sad actually to part from him at the end yeah i can see that i can see that but when you're reading just for your own pleasure, not not for research. But if you're reading just for pleasure, are you reading for character first or are you reading for story? I think I'm reading for something a little bit more elusive, actually. I'm reading okay. for something like style or I don't know what to call it, really. But I don't think I'm reading particularly for either. I don't think I would definitely say I'm not reading for story. You okay. know, though I do enjoy a good story and I yeah, believe yeah. in a good story. But I think I'm reading for... Uh, for whatever reason, I'm very aware of the sort of the, te- the technicalities of the novel and how a novel sort of works and maybe it's voice or something like that. But that's really what I'm reading for. And for me, that's what marks a good book from, a, I mean, you could have a fantastic plot and even a great character, but if you haven't been able to pull off the writing, you know, I'm kind of, you know, I'm sorry, but I've, you've kind of lost me. Yeah. So basically, you know it when you see it. Yeah, that's that's pretty much it, right? In a few pages, actually. You kind of know it in a few pages, yeah. yeah. Oh, without a doubt. Yeah. yeah, and it's really hard to, it's sort of a little elusive. It's hard to pin down what it is, but I think, right? I mean, I think quite a few people have the sort of awareness of what I'm talking about, yeah. I'm glad you do, yeah. Oh, no, I can. I can. The best way to explain it is you just know it when you see it. That's yeah. really the only way to explain it. Let's talk about literary influences for a second, because obviously, you know, this is a really fun coming of age adventure story. A lot happens. Shakespeare, we've talked about a little bit, but who are some of the other influences on you as a writer on this book in particular? What are what are some of the books and writers have helped make you you? Well, I, I grew up, I mean, I spent the first few decades of my life in India and uh, colonial hangover or whatever. My Life was suffused with British literature. I mean, right from kindergarten, from the nursery rhymes, right up to college. And and I was an English major. And so British literature has been a huge, huge, huge influence on my life. And uh, Shakespeare, of course, but I think Dickens has been a big influence, the sort of the 19th century novel and the sort of the orphan protagonist, the coming of age, you know, and I like his sort of wide cast of characters. And I also love the way he kind of mingles the comic and the tragic, which to me is important. So Dickens and all, all of British literature, contemporary to Hilary Mantle, who wrote the 
you know, the, the, the yeah, Wolf Hall series, she was a huge, huge influence on my writing. And I was also fortunate that I think I grew up at a time there was a sort of increasing pride in South Asian literature and what was mm-hmm. called Commonwealth literature and then later post-colonial yeah. literature. So writing from Africa, Ben Okri and Chinua Achebe and writing from the Caribbean and uh, you know, Arundhati Roy and Amitav Ghosh and all yeah, of yeah. those writers who wrote Indian literature. So it's been a huge, you know, hodgepodge of influences, really. And uh, that was just the way it was. And um, I think that was the biggest gift that was given to me. And, you know, which is why it surprises me sometimes when people say they don't want to read books about people who are not like them. And to me, I read nothing but books about, but, but you know, the books I read were about people who are completely unlike me. Right. And for me, that was what reading was about. You know, I wanted to read about other lives and other experiences. And in fact, I'm not particularly interested about reading about, you know, my own experience. And, uh, and uh, it was a gift. I, I think I'm very, very fortunate that I had this sort of collage of influences from all over the world, really. And later, I mean, I did not study American literature growing up, but later, uh, after moving here, I made it a point to read and study. And so it's, so I think yeah, it's, it's a huge mishmash of influences. That's my life. I mean, everything is a huge mishmash. Yeah, but it's really exciting to hear you talk about world literature in that way, where you're saying, you know, I'm trying to read people who are not me, or I like reading people who are not me. I think that's really important, and especially when you talk about the 1600s being sort of this pivot point for the world, right? Everything Mm -hmm. changes because of globalization. I mean, if you look at how shipping changed the world, right? And the interaction between, and I have all sorts of feelings about, you know, the British East India. I have so many feelings. Yeah, I mean, we all do. That's a whole separate conversation. But at the same time, you know, that kind of colonialism and all of it did change. Mm -hmm. It changed the way we live. It changed maps. It changed empire. It just, yeah, I mean, we can't pretend it didn't happen. And it suffused our lives. I I think if you grew up in a post-colonial, I mean, America too is a post-colonial country, but I think that awareness is kind of gone, you know, and while a country like India, 75 years, it's not a long time, really, if you think about the sweep of history. And I think we are very, I mean, we speak English, you know, and yeah, we speak maybe an Indian accented English, but it's still English. And our lives are informed, have been suffused by the colonial presence. And mm-hmm. it's really, and that's true of lots, most of the world, I'd say. And so there's awareness that there's always that your life is really a result of the coming together you know, of multiple, multiple, multiple forces. And there's no way outside of that. And uh, for me, the story of Tony is really the beginning of that. And he is really a product of, you know, of that. Do you feel like this story is done for you? Or would you come back to Tony at a different point? I haven't thought about that, really. And uh, I I did have Tony having a daughter at the end. And um, I would like to write about a woman. I mean, the thought has crossed my mind, but I cannot pretend I have any clear plans. I mean, I am working on another historical novel set a little bit later in the 1800s in uh, New England, where there were surprisingly also 
You know, I'm working in the world of sort of popular entertainment and the early circus and that kind of thing. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. This could so, be all right. Okay. Yeah. So that's the that's the next project, and uh, so now I'm reading everything I can about circuses in 1815 in America. Oh, that. I'm sorry, that's got to be some wild reading. That has got to be some absolutely wild reading. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, America, she's she's a funny place sometimes. She really is. <laughs> and, the, and the history of the circus is so closely connected to ideas of race. And if you think of all the people being exhibited and, you know, and all kinds of things. Yeah, so it's really shocking and crazy and bizarre, but... Well, you know, P.T. Barnum is ours. No one else can yeah. claim that dude. He's ours. Yeah. We yeah. made him. We yeah. put him on steroids. We have a lot of P.T. Barnums. You know, he's, he's got a very long legacy in this country. And I'm really excited to see what you do. So, all right. I know you just talked about how we have Tony's daughter at the very end. And I'm really not giving anything away. Y'all, I'm not giving mm-hmm. anything away by telling you that. But, and I know you just said, well, I'm thinking I'm going to write about a woman next, but Lydia is one of my favorite characters in this book. And you need someone who's a little more grounded in the universe, but still an outsider. And that's Lydia. Can we talk about her for a second? She's so great. Yeah. I mean, to me, Lydia came partly because, I mean, the historical fact is that the East Indian population merges with the African-American one very quickly. And in fact, the children, like I say in the note to the book, the children born of the union of East Indians and African Africans were essentially known as, they just came to be identified as African-American or Black. And uh, I was thinking, you know, I wanted, of course, to find him to find love and uh, and to find family and all of that. And it's, it's natural and uh, probable that uh, he would have found a woman of uh, that background. You know, here is this young man who in some ways has escaped from the life of the indentured laborer by studying medicine, you know, by st- and there's also on the historical record that there was an East Indian who became, was an apothecary's apprentice before people say this is unreal, but it did happen. But I wanted someone who would sort of stand shoulder to shoulder with him. I did not want the sort of accomplished East Indian as opposed to everyone else, you know. And so, which is why I had this African woman who's as smart, as intelligent, and in some ways, is, like you said, far more grounded because he is a little bit overwrought, as he himself puts it, and, you know, grounded and who's the sort of, you know, the guiding force and the light in his life and... Um, towards the end. So I really enjoyed Lydia and I, she's one of the few women in the story. There are not many women because that is the nature of the world that they were in. And, uh, and I wanted her in some ways to combine the mother, you know, to have a little bit of the mother he lost, but she to me stood for America. She was the America he found, you know, this foreigner, this outsider, he's looking for his place in this, in this new well, you can't even call it a country in this new colony yeah. yet. For me, he finds America in this girl who is African-American because she is born in America. Her parents came over, but she's born here. And to me, that's where he finds his place and he finds America by finding her in a way, you know, so that's what. So she's a real person, but she also is a symbol to me. And I think it's important for me too that it is a black person who's the symbol of America, which we very often, you know, uh, mm-hmm. because to me, this, this group particularly captures the complexities and the tragedies really of globalization and 
you know, early colonialism. And uh, so to me, she is America. And um, to him, to Tony, she is America. Yeah. All right. So Lydia is the beating heart of part mm-hmm. of the story, right? I mean, we've got Tony, we've got Lydia. I love them both. But, you know, you got to have some bad guys. And you do a very cool thing, though, because and we're not going to talk about the bad guys by name so people can be surprised when they meet them mm-hmm. and, and not have expectations of, you know, who's a baddie mm-hmm. just because we had, we mentioned them by name. But one of the things I love is that your bad guys are not just bad guys. They're complicated. And some of them are greedy and some of them are gross. And one of them is just a bad dude, but he's also, you understand why he's not a good guy. So when you're creating your villains, (laughs) when you're creating the bad guys, are you starting with the idea, you know, this? you've got to have conflict, right? In a novel, you have to have conflict. But did you know where you wanted to bring them in? Did you know who they were going to be? Or did you just say, okay, I need this kind of representation and we're going to go from there? Like, how did you walk that tightrope between sort of caricatures of bad guys because you need stuff to happen and Mm -hmm. these sort of very complex bad guys that you gave us? I think uh, the, the historical moment in a way helped me as it were, okay. because uh, I mean, it's a life of tremendous struggle for everyone, you know, black, white, brown, whatever the case is. And uh, so here were these people who in some, and it can bring out, I mean, I think this kind of world, this kind of moment can bring out the best in you, but it can definitely bring out the worst in you too. Right. I mean, when you are essentially it's survival and it's struggle and even the one bad guy who's the sort of the grossest, he is someone who's really trying to make it too. You know, and as Tony's friend later, and they're all trying to make it. And in the process of trying to carve out, not even carve out, it's essentially scratch out some kind of existence for themselves in this world. Uh, they do compromise, right? They compromise heavily on a lot of things. And uh, I think I was, for me, just this, this awareness of that, that would I have been any better? I don't right. know. You know, I frankly don't know. Would I have been above all of it and been some kind of saint? I don't know myself. And I think that the complexity of the historical moment made it impossible for me to yeah. simply have the sort of the caricature of the villain. I was too aware of the sort of the struggle that mm-hmm. almost everyone, almost everyone went through to make it. And I think that's what shaped all the characters who are not the good guys of the piece. Right. Yeah. Are you hoping that's what readers take away, that, that compassion? I mean, you hide a lot of big sort of ideas in sort of a deceptively skinny novel that's part adventure story and part coming of age. But is it that compassion that you really want? I mean, not just the globalization and not just the, the yeah. you know, this hinge mm. moment, right, where the world starts to become the world that we know. But it seems like compassion for all of these people yeah. is the thing that you're really asking us to think about. Yeah, compassion. Uh, yeah, definitely. I think compassion, a sense of sort of empathy, you know, because they were all in a way embarking on an adventure, right? It was not just Tony, all of their lives were an adventure and uh, a complicated adventure. It's not just the fun quest for treasure kind of adventure. And uh, so I think compassion and empathy, and I I go back to the word I used before, because it's a word that, uh, you know, it's a sense of sort of wonder that all of this came together and that all of this happened. For me, the very fact that there was an America and people discovered it, even to this day, I make the journey across the Atlantic uh, 
hundred times each, you know, when I travel, but each time I look down from the plane and I think of those little wooden boats and those other ships that came later with the slaves in them. And I'm, I cannot forget that. And I cannot be filled with the sense of sort of both shock and awe, you know, that it happened. Yeah. I'm right there with you. Brenda Cherry, thank you so much for joining us on Port Over. The East Indian is out now. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. Hello, readers. It's time for another TBR Top Off. We're going to recommend a couple of great books to pick up when you stop in for your copy of The East Indian. I'm Mark. I'm here in my Barnes & Noble in Cincinnati, and I'm joined by my book buddy, Madison. Hello, Madison. Hello, I'm Madison. I'm joining you from California, The Grove. Excellent. So I'm going to go ahead and jump right in. I was thinking about the East Indian and about a main character who has a lot of very beautiful observations about the world and has this thread of optimism that I think can kind of resonate with a lot of readers. And it made me think of a classic. Uh, So I chose David Copperfield by Charles Dickens. The book is full of darkness and hope and heart and humor and just has a main character who has a worldview that allows for some hope. The book begins with David's birth and we follow him into adulthood along with a voluminous cast of very eclectic characters. You've got a doting mother, you've got a very cruel stepfather, you've got a ruthless headmaster and probably one of the slimiest antagonists in literature, Uriah Heep. I hate you so much. (laughs) Such a jerk. And so many more people. David almost feels like a passive uh, observer or bystander wherein he witnesses events and comments on them. He observes these characters as they impact his life. But I don't see that really as a fault. It feels like he really deep down knows that the world is good, despite the people around him who do their very best to prove otherwise. I think that the characters that um, end up occurring throughout his life just careen him off into these very unexpected paths and just kind of paint this lovely picture of the life of a man uh, in a way that is, yes, dark, but also, again, full of hope. And I think we could all stand a little dose of that. So if you get a chance, check out David Copperfield by uh, Charles Dickens. Madison, what do you have for us? So when I was thinking of books to recommend, I kind of went on a similar like vein looking at really like rich main characters, like rich as in like their like personality is like in their like development. It's a very rich development. And that is why I chose She Who Became the Sun by Shelley Parker Chan. I think this book is phenomenal. The writing alone, imagery, we love a good descriptive imagery. So the story takes place in China in 1345 under Mongol rule. The first setting you see is like a famine-stricken village and you meet these two siblings, not sisters, siblings. Um, You have the brother who is destined for greatness and then the daughter who is destined for nothing. So those are their fates and those are the two like dualities that are shown through the book. Then tragedy strikes, it leaves the brother and sister orphaned, and then unfortunately, 
the brother dies. And so the sister is then left with choosing, is she going to settle for her fate of nothing? Or is she going to take on her brother's fate of greatness? And she chooses greatness. So she then goes undercover as her brother and joins a like monastery and all under the her brother's identity. Um, so you kind of see through the story, like the complexity of this character, kind of like how you take being told that you're basically like worthless, you're not going to amount to anything. And then being like, no, actually, I'm going to take on my brother was destined for greatness. Well, too bad. Now I am because he died. That seemed really shallow when I put it like that. But <laughs> I love this writing and the character growth throughout this novel. The setting, it is such like a detailed like setting. And I love when people can add like twists to history. A lot of people compare this story to Mulan. So if you're a fan of Mulan, um, this might be a book for you. I would also compare it if you're a fan of the Poppy War. That's also a good pairing um, along with this month's pick. So yeah, it was just a fantastic novel. It has queer elements. It has a little bit of everything. And I love a detailed rich story. That's what I was looking for earlier, detailed rich. And so I think this definitely is a book for you if you enjoy like a bit of historical fiction, a bit of fantasy. It has a little bit of everything. And I think it definitely at its core has a fantastic message of even though sometimes you are told you will be nothing, you will actually be something. And that's why I chose she Who Became the Sun for this week's pick. Fantastic. It is, a, it is a great book. It gave me a little bit of Cersei vibe in that, you know, a character who is told they will never amount to anything and shouldn't bother trying and then comes into her power in, in beautiful ways. So nice choice. But that's all we have for today. Thanks so much for tuning in to Port Over. Please make sure to give us a rating and subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can also follow us on our socials at Barnes & Noble. Pretty simple. I'm Mark. You can follow my home store at BN Westchester. And I'm Madison. You can follow my store at BN Events Grove. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Happy reading. Bye. Happy reading. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. Pour It Over is a Barnes & Noble production. To help other readers find us, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for listening. Pour It Over is a Barnes & Noble production. To help other readers find us, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for listening. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. To help other readers find us, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you.